0: Don't forget, we are in the final stretch of our two-in-one winter fundraiser to raise funds for my upcoming Climate Ride event, Raising Money to Fight Against Climate Change, alongside a membership drive to help support the show, including incentives like exclusive 100% recycled fabric t-shirts and hoodies that we only make available during these drives. You can check out the campaign and all the details by clicking on the big banner right on our homepage or the link in the show notes right on your listening device. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall hear what Republicans used to sound like when they debated immigration policy, learn the hard-nosed economic realities of immigration, understand the details of the wrong-headedness of the border wall, Hear why deportations are actually down under Trump this past year, get the latest on the threat to all DACA recipients and 260,000 Salvadorians from the Trump administration, and learn the unsurprising answer to the question of which countries Trump thinks are and are not shitholes. Our clips today come from The Majority Report, a progressive faith sermon with Dr. Roger Ray, The Dig, The David Packman Show, In The Thick, and Joy Reid on MSNBC.
1: Here is a debate between George Herbert Walker Bush, who ran against Ronald Reagan in the 1980 Republican primary. Ultimately, Reagan uh, chose George Herbert Walker Bush as his vice president. Reagan served for two terms, if you'll recall. Then George Herbert Walker Bush won in 1988 against Michael Dukakis, served for one term, and then was defeated by Bill Clinton. But just to give you a sense, we're talking about now 37 years ago, approximately, probably very close to the date, maybe a little bit earlier. Reagan and Bush debated over immigration policies. And just listen to the tone and the substance of this debate on immigration between two Republican candidates for the presidency in 1980.
2: Aliens should be allowed to attend Texas public schools free, or do you think that their parents should pay for their education? Who are you addressing? All right, pause so it I pause it for one for- second.
1: Now I should just say the question was, because it got a little bit clipped, do you think? That undocumented immigrants should get, should be able to go to public schools in Texas. And here is uh, George Herbert Walker Bush.
2: Who are you addressing that to? I think you're first in this. uh... He's looking right at you. I said he was. (laughs) Look, I'd like to see something done about the illegal alien problem that would be so sensitive and so understanding about labor needs and human needs that that problem wouldn't come up. But today, if those people are here, uh, I would reluctantly say I think they would they would get whatever it is that they're, you know, what the society is giving to their neighbors. But it has the problem has to be solved. The problem has to be solved because with as we have kind of made illegal some kinds of labor that I'd like to see legal, we're doing two things. We're creating a whole society of. Really honorable decent family-loving people that are in violation of the law and secondly we're exacerbating relations with mexico The 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 answer to your question is much more fundamental than whether they attend Houston schools It seems to me. I don't want to see a whole if they're living here. I don't want to see a whole Think a six and eight year old kids being made you know one totally uneducated and made to feel that they're living with outside the law. Let's address ourselves to the fundamentals. These are good people, strong people. Part of my family is a Mexican. Can I add to that? I think the time has come that the United States and our neighbors, particularly our neighbor to the South, should have a better understanding and a better relationship than we've ever had. And I think that we haven't been sensitive enough to our size and our power. They have a problem of 40 to 50 percent unemployment. Now, this cannot continue without the possibility arising with regard to that other country that we talked about, of Cuba and what it is stirring up, of the possibility of trouble below the border, and we could have a very hostile and strange neighbor on our border. Rather than making them or talking about putting up a fence, why don't we work out some recognition of our mutual problems make it possible for them to come here legally with a work permit, and then while they're working and earning here, they pay taxes here. And when they go, want to go back, they can go back, and they can cross and open the border.
1: And open the border uh, to them, said Ronald Reagan. Now, you just contemplate. Now, I'm not saying those are, um, uh, uh, there are some problems with so, what they're suggesting there, the idea of creating a second-class citizenry uh, The sort of uh, worker permits, I think, are somewhat problematic to a certain extent. But nevertheless, it's unbelievable, unbelievable where we are today in terms of the Republican Party when it comes to immigration based upon where the two leading candidates in the Republican primary back in 1980 were, one of whom was considered the most conservative president uh, that we had had in modern times. And remind you that Reagan, as president, basically gave amnesty to three to five million, I think it was, undocumented immigrants at that time. It was NAFTA that then became uh, problematic and drove a lot of uh, Mexican farmers north.
3: When it comes to the topic of immigration, those of us on the church side, we want to talk about compassion. We, we want to use Old Testament language of welcoming the stranger. But we also really have common ground with Wall Street and corporate interests and even the Pentagon when it comes to this one. I was intrigued by a lecture delivered by Dr. Richard Wolfe, who's an emeritus economics professor at the University of Michigan at Amherst. He explains that looked at from a purely economic perspective, a person's least productive time of life is their first 20 years. Children consume goods, but... They don't produce goods, or they shouldn't produce goods. In a civilized society, they shouldn't be producing anything. In most countries, parents sacrifice to raise and educate their children who, for an entire generation, consume medical services. They eat. They have to be housed. They also require a lot of sacrifices for education and for child care. So when a 20-year-old immigrant comes to the United States, we are inheriting an economic asset that is ready to enter the productive, income-generating, tax-paying time of their lives, which is why both countries and communities complain about brain drain when too many of their young people seek to leave to seek their fortunes elsewhere. A child requires a huge investment in the future. So every immigrant who comes here is an investment that is being made in our country, often by a much poorer country that cannot really afford to do it for us. But we're acting like they're somehow a tax on us when in fact we're inheriting a gold mine Every time a able-bodied laborer shows up in our country. We often hear that illegal immigrants are a drain on our tax-supported services. And while there are some medical and educational expenses involved in their presence here, by and large, they are paying taxes and cannot legally receive benefits from the taxes that they're paying. They're paying into Social Security. They're paying into Medicare. They're paying into Medicaid. But they don't get to draw out of those things. I personally think that it's wrong to make them pay if they don't get to legally uh, uh, draw out again. But looked at, again, from a purely economic perspective, if you just talk about the math involved in this, illegal immigrants are not only doing back-breaking labor that few American citizens would want to do, even if they were paying two or three times as much for the labor, you still couldn't get many Americans to do it. But at the same time, they are subsidizing our social safety net. It's not fair, but it works to the favor of American citizens. Now, I personally wish that we could turn Central, North, and South America into the kind of union that Europe has had in which people could move as freely As capital now moves, we have very strict laws, uh, and, and Trump wants to build a fence along our southern border to keep people from moving around. But while you can restrict people, you can't really restrict the movement of money. Money is fungible. So money will go to wherever labor is cheaper and where safety and environmental laws are more lax. If we made it so that people could move as easily as money moves, we could keep production closer to the point of consumption while keeping workers' salaries higher and working conditions safer and less of an environmental damage. Now, this is not even something that's under conversation in the Americas, but just think about if we just quit all of this fear of immigration and allowed all of the Americas, to be one economic union. We maintain sovereignty of Canada and the United States and Mexico and what have you, but we have an economic union that makes labor as fungible as capital, and it would solve tremendous problems. It would be good for Wall Street. It would be good for the environment. It would be good for labor. And it would give we liberals one less thing to whine about. And wouldn't conservatives love that? Speaking of things that liberals are mad about, though, just think about how this would solve the DACA problem. We're now threatening to deport 80,000 young, productive, educated, law-abiding, tax-paying people, deporting them possibly to a nation where they don't even speak the language. I mean, if you were brought here... Uh, I, I adopted my daughter when she was four months old from Korea, and for years we go to Korean restaurants, and the waitresses would be angry that she didn't speak Korean. I said, she speaks as much Korean as your kid did when your kid was four months old. That, that <laughs> these, these kids who were brought to the United States by their parents... Oftentimes learned English first and became the family translator and, and they, they don't even have the skills to get a job if we deport them to Mexico, Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador. We would literally be assassinating their work life. They would, they would become indigent in their country of birth because they don't know how to make a living there. But from a purely economic perspective, we need for them to stay. They are an economic asset to us. It's also relevant to point out that statistically, both the Dreamers and other illegal immigrants have a much lower crime rate than native born Americans. You think about it. If you are not a citizen and you draw any legal attention to yourself, you don't just get a fine or get sent to jail for a couple of weeks. You get deported. The undocumented are even much more careful drivers than the rest of us because they don't want to draw attention to themselves by so much as a speeding ticket that might drag them into court and have their citizenship questioned. By and large, our cities are safer and more civil and require less expenditure uh, in a police force when we have more undocumented workers among us. Now, when it comes to matters of what has truly made America the world's center for invention, in the STEM topics, you know, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, we have a crucial and tragically overlooked economic issue in America right now. When I was at Harvard, I often rode the subway line that connected MIT and and Harvard and Boston's subway, and that subway was a virtual United Nations. When, When we came to a stop under MIT, it was impossible not to notice that most of the Arabs and Asians got off the train. It's inescapable to be aware that we are drawing the geniuses of Asia, and the Middle East and Africa to the United States now harvard and i 'm I enjoyed my time at Harvard and proud to have been there, but you can get into Harvard if your parents or grandparents went you know there 's a lot of uh, i 'd like to say that it was uh, I was around the smartest people i 've ever been around, but there were some real dummies in the class <laughs> whose, <laughs> whose, uh, whose parents had just either donated enough money or had the blue blood lines to get them into Harvard. MIT doesn't play that game. You get into MIT if you are the smartest and the best. One out of uh, 18 or 20 of their applicants actually get in, and 10% of the people at MIT are from 63 nations around the world. So we draw off, we siphon off other nations' best and brightest And one of the ways that America became such a global force in science and technology is exactly because we happened to have the best schools, so we attracted the best students from the world for the past hundred years. And in very many cases, we kept them. They graduated, we gave them a green card, and they stayed here. Very many of these brilliant young inventors, physicians, and scientists are now being told to take their valuable education and go home. We've become very conservative about giving green cards and permission for people to stay, and so they come here, they take up the seat in in, uh, classrooms in STEM topics, they get the degree, and then we tell them to go away. Many of you know a great deal more about American history than I do, but I believe that it's fair to say that if we had the aggressive immigration restrictions that we have today in the first half of the 20th century, such immigrants as Albert Einstein and the German parents of Robert Oppenheimer would have been in Germany during World War II. And without them, it's difficult to believe that we would have won World War II. And if they had been pressed into the service of the Nazis, we might well have lost World War II. And the world would be a different place. It's difficult to imagine what American science, as well as art, music, theater, movies, or culture would be without the influence of just the German-Jewish population that immigrated to the United States in the early 20th century. But like many of you, my day begins and ends being impacted all day long by my iPhone, my iPad, my Apple laptop, all of which are traced to the genius of the son of a Syrian immigrant, Steve Jobs.
4: The border is more militarized than ever before, yet perhaps more Americans than ever before feel more passionately than ever that the border is dangerously insecure, and as a result, elected Donald Trump president. What's going on?
5: Yeah, there is this uh, striking historical amnesia. Um, The border is now more policed, guarded, patrolled, monitored, surveilled, regulated, Probably than any time uh, by far in any time in America's history. Um, this began, the real buildup began the, in the early 90s and has continued um, rapidly ever since. But um, what's interesting is a large perception is that it's a chaotic, wide open, lawless land. And there certainly is a lot of lawlessness and a lot of smuggling and illicit activities across the border, but from a historical perspective, What's really new and different is actually the amount of policing that's, that's gone on over the last couple of decades. You know, Trump, you mentioned um, Donald Trump, the favorite rallying cry at his, mar- at his um, rallies was, you know, build that wall. I that mean, big, beautiful a lot, you know, wall. Big, beautiful wall. Uh, you know, he, he was elected for many reasons, and there's you know it's complicated, but it's striking that if you had to pick one thing, that people chanted at his, uh, rallies other than maybe lock her up, uh, was build that wall. And I wouldn't even be surprised if, if build that wall was even a bigger chant than, than lock her up.
4: Yeah. It's really re- remarkable, um, that that was the kind of central chant demand of the Trump campaign, um, and has now for Trump's opponents, uh, border militarization and the wall has become one of the most salient symbols of right-wing, xenophobic, bigoted nationalism. Um, Yet, in a sense, the wall, to a certain extent, is already already built. There are hundreds of miles of fencing, and it was border militarization and, and fencing and walls was a pretty accepted part of bipartisan immigration border policy for the last... Few decades.
5: Well, what's interesting is you, you said fencing as walls accepted policy across the, the, the political divide, but in some ways the language matters because um, what there was agreement on, and people were scrambling to, you know, propose propose more of it, which is you know fencing, but they shied away from actually calling it a wall. Uh, Pat Buchanan in the '90s uh, ran as a Republican saying he wanted to build a wall in in, 92 in 92 and and i think again in 96 and um uh republicans shied away from him they thought he was too hardcore too extremist so they kind of you know treated him as some kind of fringe character he said he wanted to build a wall and keep out drugs and migrants with the wall and it was his sort of his 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 term and people ran from it but now several decades later Trump has totally embraced it, and it's a new political era, um, post-9-11, not a lot of memories of of those early debates with Pat Buchanan, and um, uh, he's been embraced in in a lot of quarters for it. But you're right, the opposition also, you know, no wall, right, has been a a, a rallying cry, and and so far um, he hasn't been able to build his big, beautiful wall, but as you put it, a lot of it's already built. It's just not called a wall, I mean, hundreds of miles, maybe over 600 miles of fencing currently um, exist along the border. And it's not as if Trump actually was proposing a 2,000-mile-long wall. Um, I think his, his team immediately, or pretty, pretty soon after proposing it, you know, acknowledged that a lot of the terrain wouldn't allow for a, a wall. And obviously, you're not going to wall off the border ports of entry which you know, would wall off one of our most important trade partners uh so yeah the 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 infrastructure is already partly in place. it's just that he's been the first person who's who's actually wants to call it a wall and has done so proudly so going back to the late
4: eighties early nineties, um, let's start with the politics and then move to the policies of what those politics put in place in terms of uh, escalating border security. Why and how did border security become the site of so much intense political drama in that moment?
5: Some of it is very local politics. I mean, it's a a national issue. But in the early 90s, Governor Pete Wilson in California... He basically ran on a um, get tough on an unauthorized uh, immigration from Mexico and turned out he struck a chord. It was, California was in a, in a recession. It was tough times right after the Cold War, the defense industry in Southern California was reeling uh, and Proposition 187 emerged out of California uh, and um, he cleverly showed footage that the border patrol had provided him of migrants dashing across the border, uh, you know, wide open, uh, into traffic. Um, uh, It was just sort of, the images were just of a completely out of control, chaotic port of entry. And um, he played that up and um, partly won re-election on that. The federal government, in a sense, California and other local circumstances like in El Paso, you know they put it on the agenda for Washington, and then Washington responded uh, by an influx of more fences, more manpower, more stadium lighting, and so on uh, to to basically um, take back the debate over the over the border i mean it was it was it was almost an embarrassment for the federal government, and then they sort of cracked down and said, "Look what we're doing to secure the border." And ironically, these images of people
4: um, near San Diego Mm -hmm. running across the highway, that was actually a result of one of the early border enforcement measures. Yes, I'm
5: glad you mentioned that because um, some of the first fencing that went up was um, the first 14 miles, uh, the westernmost first 14 miles of, of the border started to erect a fence. And so this was an area where migrants previously... Um, were fairly easily coming and going, including going, I mean, back and forth almost as sort of cross-border commuters, if you will. And once that fencing went up and they started, you know, patrolling more, um, that actually drove migrants to dash across the port of entry itself, which was um, uh, 14 miles in. And that's the footage that uh, Pete Wilson used, was those migrants uh, running right through the port of entry. Uh, so you're absolutely right, and that, if I'm not mistaken, that initial fencing uh, was justified and used as an anti-drug effort rather than immigration control. I think it had it was funded by, and and justified as an anti anti-drug initiative. In fact, and the fencing itself, as I recall, were basically recycled, you know, landing mats from military landing mats from Vietnam. Uh, and other military conflicts, and so it gave new, new meaning to the word recycling. It was kind of a Cold War recycling of old leftover Cold War stuff. Um, and and you know it wasn't a formidable uh, fence, but it shifted the traffic, um, and it had political consequences. And this is something that
4: happens again and again in the pro- as border enforcement escalates again and again throughout the nineties, right. and two thousands, you write is that it. Uh, produces situations that then call out for, seem to call out for and justify yet more border enforcement. There's
5: a self, there was a kind of self reinforcing built in escalatory dynamic, uh, you could almost call it a, a border version of NIMBY, not in my backyard. So, you know, you push the migrant flow from one place to another, and then local communities in in the in the new area where we're not accustomed to migrants crossing would be in an uproar, and then the federal government would put in some border patrol agents there, and then it would push it somewhere else. And so, suddenly, uh, uh, it's not California, but it's Arizona, which is the you know. Um, epicenter of 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 the migrant traffic across the border and um so although california border in a, in a sense was um uh, uh, you know secured uh, the overall uh, migrant flows uh during that period if anything were 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 going up and the this shifting of
4: of of migration from m- near major ports of entry into the arizona desert had uh enormous consequence for the migrants
5: themselves oh sure i mean this is this is a you know disaster uh and a tragedy in terms of literally pushing people into harsh and dangerous terrain where um if they were to continue doing what they're trying to do which is enter the united states um someone would 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 perish and what's interesting is that the, it was called the INS, Immigration Naturalization Service, which was then folded in the Department of Homeland Security uh, shortly after 9/11. Um, INS officials were on record as saying that they thought that that terrain would be a deterrent; that that they thought that migrants um, that that would be a natural uh, fence, if you will. But it proved not to be the case, obviously. Instead. Um, they braved the dangers and importantly they also um, relied more and more on professional um, migrant smugglers Uh, so before crossing the border you know you could self-smuggle take yourself across uh, didn't have to hire anyone necessarily uh, more of a luxury than a necessity and people would uh,
4: in between let's say downtown El Paso and Juarez would talk about crossing by the river uh, to get to work in El Paso, and then crossing yeah. back uh, through the port of entry back
5: into Mexico at night. Think about it as as unauthorized commuters. Yeah. Uh, it was it was that simple, that easy, well established, visible, that well established, tolerated for a very long time, frankly. Uh, and once the dynamic changed because of an effort to to crack down, suddenly, you know, migrant smugglers who'd been there. For a long time, their business just boomed, and they could charge more. Uh, and the migrants were more dependent on them, um, so that the rela- so that so the migrant was not only uh, at risk by the environment, meaning you know mountains and terrain and, and heat and cold, but also their lives were also put in the hands of, of professional smugglers in a way that wasn't true before.
0: We are coming close to the end of our 2-in-1 Winter Fundraiser, which is both a fundraiser to fight climate change through Climate Ride and also a membership drive to help sustain the show. Again today, i got to catch up on the backlog of members of the show to thank after focusing so much on Climate Ride donors, so a huge thanks to recent professional protester-level members Avis B., Pat C., Larry the Table Guy, Eric P., Bill M, Mara H, David K, Paxton R, and Jeff R. Uh, Some of those are new members, some are old who just uh, made the switch over to Patreon, and I have a whole lot more to catch up on, but don't worry, I'm going to get to everyone eventually. Don't forget that now is a good time to join if you haven't already because you can get free apparel as a thank you gift if you support both the Climate Ride fundraiser and become a member at the same time. Uh, Climate Ride helps support the fundraising efforts of NGOs fighting against climate change directly and for all the positive things that would make life better and fight climate change sort of indirectly, like more bike paths to make it easier for more people to commute without burning anything except calories, that sort of thing. Plus, members get all of the bonus content we put out, and I must say, uh, the last few bonus episodes must have really struck a chord because the voicemail line has been blowing up in response just to the members' episodes. You know, I, I mentioned before that one of the holiday episodes included a metaphor about the mechanics and art of designing how people stand in line, which I know sounds boring but isn't. And we received a combined 15 minutes of calls from people talking about designing lines. I, I can hardly believe that that's true. Uh, so it turns out that that was kind of fascinating. And in our latest episode, we discussed Star Wars and how it helps explain a certain type of conservative logic. And that episode got a response from a listener uh, that I titled in my notes, thoughts on the new Star Wars and why we're all doomed uh, so you know that that must have been an interesting conversation uh, so to hear all of our bonus shows and for all the details on getting your free Best of the Left t-shirts and hoodies made of all recycled materials and people love them I might add uh, just head to bestofleft.com and click the huge winter fundraiser banner on the homepage or of course there's a convenient link right in the show notes for this episode you can't miss it so thanks in advance for your sport.
6: Interesting thing going on with, uh, deportations of undocumented immigrants. You'll remember that our current president promised to be the big deporter. He'd get the country cleaned up of the not the best people that Mexico has been sending us law and order, all of that type of thing. And it is true that the Trump administration has been bragging about and has been making more arrests, right? Immigration officials from ice have been making more arrests for people who are on, uh, who have immigration status violations since he became president of the United States. But more arrests does not mean more deportations, especially when the arrests are pretty haphazard. Deportations are actually down under Trump. Now I'm not complaining. I'm not passing a value judgment on this. I'm just pointing out to you that the rhetoric has been, everybody's going to go out and then they can come back in maybe legally through a beautiful door in the as yet to be built wall that Mexico will pay for. But deportations are down. The numbers show that the Trump administration is on pace for fewer deportations in 2017 than in 2016 under president Barack Obama. and. There are 43% more arrests. So how do the numbers add up more arrests, way more arrests, but way fewer deportations. The pledge from Trump was to arrest and deport so-called criminal illegal aliens, 3 million drug dealers that Trump says are around and gang members and other criminals who have committed crimes in addition to being undocumented in the United States. ICE is having trouble finding them, right? 43% more arrests by ice, but it's mostly people with no criminal record who are just in the U S undocumented. In addition, Trump's rhetoric around immigration has made it so that a ton of nonprofits have raised way more money in donations. They are now providing pro bono legal help to undocumented immigrants and that is slowing down deportation. So consider the big picture of what's happening here. Trump wants to keep us safe. So he says, we're going to just start arresting way more people and deporting them ice rather than targeting specific undocumented immigrants who have committed violent and other crimes and would qualify for quick deportation. ICE starts haphazardly arresting everybody with an immigration status violation. It fills up the system with people that are low priority with deportation. Many of them end up getting free legal representation as a result of Trump's rhetoric and then the entire law enforcement and immigration and legal apparatus gets gummed up because it's full of people who have been arrested on immigration status violation violations, but actually haven't committed any crimes. It's backwards. It's a total gong show. And if your question is, well, how will the Trump administration talk about this? They'll just say ice is doing a fantastic job. Tremendous. Really? Did you know arrests are up? A lot of people didn't know that, but they are, we're arresting more illegals than ever before. Stunning, really amazing what Barron can do with computers. They're going out and maybe someday they'll come back in, but they're just being arrested by ice and deportations are down. If you are a committed Trumpist, how do you defend this? How do you justify this? And again, I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm not saying I support the policy, but if you're a Trumpist and you believed what Trump was going to do. How do you defend this or do you just pretend it's not going on?
1: A lot of things were punted at the end of the year so that Republicans could pass that tax uh, scam. And um, so we're dealing with a lot of stuff, including uh, the the question of whether or not the government is going to ha- uh, shut down in just, I guess, about 15 days from now, 12 days from now on the 19th. Uh, give me your sense of what the big fight is there.
7: Well, I mean, you know... Uh... I'm not sure, to be honest, because I think if we were going by what we would normally see in this government funding fight, we would see the far right in the House and perhaps some members of the Senate like, you know, Rand Paul or, you know, Mike Lee or some of those those kind of libertarian style folks who would be unwilling to vote for, you know, the uh, to keep the government open because out of an ideological commitment to, you know, we've got to reduce spending and the deficit, all the rest of that. And what that would then require is for the Republicans to find some Democrats to help them get it over the line. And that would mean they'd have to negotiate with Democrats. And I think that people are assuming that means that that is the forum in which we would perhaps be able to get a deal on the DREAMers, on on the renewal of some kind of DACA. I don't know if that's going to hold true, because the reason is that I'm seeing this far-right uh, cabal uh, caucus, the House Freedom Caucus and these other guys in, in, in the Senate, suddenly have become full-blown Trump guys. And and they are, in fact, Mark Meadows, the head of the House Freedom Caucus, is flying around on Air Force One with Trump. Apparently they're on the phone with each other all the time. They are now allies, and we're seeing this happen a lot in the in the Congress, Whereas once, you know, we kind of thought everybody would maintain their own, you know, niches uh, right. and their and their own kind of uh, caucuses within this whole thing in which they would leverage their power, we're seeing a lot of that fall away. As we saw during the tax tax fight, um, you know, nobody cared about the deficit, obviously, um, and 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 we we're seeing that that whatever never Trump, uh, you know, group there might have been or people even just a little bit queasy about it. Um, other than, you know, Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, who are both retiring, and John McCain, who, you know, who knows what he's going to do. I mean, they voted on the tax bill, but even just in general, people like Lindsey Graham or Orrin Hatch, who's now retiring, others kind of going full-blown, you know, Trumpist. And that says to me that we may be looking at a different dynamic. Now, I assume that I'm not the only one who sees that. I have to assume that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are well aware Aware all that is probably more aware than I am. So, I have to assume that they're not planning uh, their attack uh, in terms of DACA and keeping the government open. Uh, you know, based solely on the past. I mean, that that if there has if this shift that I'm seeing and and feeling uh, exists, that they've got another plan. So, it, to that extent, I don't know what it would be, and I don't right. know what to expect.
1: Yeah, it's, know, um, it is very tough to game this out, uh, because, like you say, um, you don't get the same preening that you get when you have a Democratic president, right? You, you don't get mm-hmm. the, uh, you, the, there's a lot more, uh, party discipline. I mean, we saw it in the context of the, uh, the tax cuts. Now, um, in, in some respects, I guess you could say, well, how come, uh, the rollback on, uh, the Affordable Care Act didn't work? You know, it was two, they had, two, they had defections from literally, uh, three Republicans, right? And yep. one, uh, wanted to make sure that he, uh, he got his, uh, air time, And the other two were ones who were going to really suffer, uh, electorally. Uh, Susan Collins, you know, may want to run for governor in Maine. And if she's literally cut the, the healthcare of hundreds of thousands of people on Medicaid, she's going to have a tough time with that in her own state. But beyond that, um, there has been, uh, a tremendous amount, it seems to me, of, of falling in line with the, with the Trump agenda, which is, you know, frankly, not that different from, uh, the Republican agenda, broadly speaking. Um, and so, I guess we'll see. I suspect we're going to end up seeing another punt and we're going to see another continuing resolution when it comes to the budget. But uh, the the question is, is that, I mean, the 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 the, the clock is ticking for uh, for DACA people. Mm-hmm. And these are these are people who were. Brought to this country as children who have lived in this country for, I think, well over a decade uh, and maybe deported to a country that in many cases they haven't seen for their the, the vast majority of their life. I mean, maybe, you know, uh, they were there when they were one or, you know, 18 months old.
8: I want to get to something um, that it's been so upsetting, to be honest with you. It's just been so deeply upsetting that I've almost had to pull back because I'm so upset about this, which is the end of TPS, otherwise known as temporary protected status um, for Salvadorans. Now, all of this started actually more than a century ago in terms of the relationship of the United States with El Salvador. But in the 80s and 90s, in response to violence from the Civil War in El Salvador, um, there was once TPS, it went away, it came back after the earthquakes in 2001. Now, basically over 200,000 Salvadorans who have been living and working here legally in the United States are expected to leave. And yes, it's called temporary. Um, But essentially, the way everybody's played it out is that this really feels permanent.
9: The TPS will get terminated next year in September of 2019. So it's a year and a half. Um, There's an estimated, like you said, Maria, over around 200,000 Salvadorans who are here. And also, the other thing is that those Salvadorans have U.S.-born children. And that is... (laughs) About 200,000 U.S. citizen kids. It's a pretty substantial population. And we also have two people in the Beltway, people in the, the DMV uh, area here, the, who would understand that
8: there's a very strong Salvadoran community in the DMV area. Dude, if all the Salvadorans in Washington, D.C. and the surrounding, if they disappeared, it couldn't function.
10: It's done. Like, like the basic stuff. And I'm, and I'm not doing this as a stereotype at all. But, uh, you know, I mean, we depend as you guys know, we've discussed on the show before, we depend uh, on so many immigrants to do the jobs that so many rural Americans won't do. Uh, And that's the same case here in Washington, D.C., in Virginia. So if they all decide to leave one day and say, you know what, tap out, I'm not going to show up because you're not showing up for me, a lot of basic stuff uh, that we take for granted is not going to happen.
8: You're making these kids, you know, have to make these decisions that is like a Sophie's Choice. And with TPS and ending TPS... I'm, it's heartbreaking to say this, but I completely expected this. I'm not surprised. Ed, what do you got about all this?
11: Congress could do something about this. And just as he's compelling them to do something on DACA right now, they got 18 months to sort this one out as well. And don't be surprised if you hear in the coming days that this decision regarding TPS suddenly becomes a potential element of the ongoing talks over DACA and a wall and such things. And remember, the dynamics could be far different politically here in Washington by September 2019, depending how the congressional elections go later this year.
10: If you look at Virginia, right, and you look at Gillespie versus Northam, I mean, Gillespie ran that campaign, right, MS-13, immigrants, but there's enough of a pushback. And if indeed the midterm elections go the way we're anticipating, where a lot of critical seats are going to be picked up by Democrats and Republicans and conservatives, because they've been pushed further to the right on this issue, thanks to Donald Trump, will, of course, run on this platform of saying, look, we're going to keep America safe and secure. And one of the ways of doing it is to kick out these Salvadorans who are here only temporarily. I think you're going to see enough, if you will, a multicultural coalition of the willing that will come around this issue and say this is an example of a hateful vision of America. And you might have enough to tilt it, if you will, uh, in the direction where these people stay. wash all hopeful. Yeah, but you also see the Republicans realize and Donald Trump realizes that maybe with DACA and the Salvadorans, I can hijack the Democrats and get my wall funded, which will be a win for him.
11: Yeah. Bush and Obama never pushed this aggressively to force the issue, and Trump has been doing that. And yes, for many of our listeners, this is gut-wrenching. It's horrifying. But I, I ultimately think that these things do get end up getting sorted out. I was at a conversation this morning, just this morning, with Mario Diaz-Balart, the congressman from Miami, who's quite confident that the DACA situation short-term here will get sorted out. He conceded. It's going to be a little ugly. It's going to be a little dirty as these talks and the rhetoric continue. But he said it's going to get sorted out because everyone knows it has to be. Setting an 18-month clock leaves this open now is the next big crisis-driven step
8: to make other changes. And actually, on Tuesday, Trump spoke with Democrats specifically talking about a bill um, to protect DREAMers.
12: I feel having the Democrats in with us is absolutely vital because this should be a bipartisan bill. This should be a bill of love. Truly, it should be a bill of love and we can do that.
9: One of the things that people probably are not aware of, is that you know what trended on Twitter on Monday morning when this came out? It was a global trend. Uh, the phrase 200,000 Salvadorans. Whoa, what? The question I have about for Democrats when it comes to the border wall, it seems to be a non-negotiable. Is that the sense Ed, that you're getting that we're not going to, you know, a DACA deal and maybe an eventual TPS deal? Is that the Democrats are giving up too much in terms of this, and and wh-
8: wh- where's the where's the line in the sand for Democrats? And also, what, what does that mean for the Democrats in 2018? I mean, you can exactly. totally yeah. see where people are going to be like, wait a second. You know, one of the reasons why Hillary faced a big challenge precisely had to do with Central American children, who she said, right, who she said oh, they need to go back. It was something that many people could not forgive her for. So what is the Democrats now? How does it play out in terms of how they um, how this might impact them in 2018?
11: I mean, we could devote a whole episode to this, but I'll say this much. I think the first issue is what is the definition of a wall? And by when do they expect it? And I think if you unpack what's been said and what's being talked about a little bit, a quote unquote wall Is a combination of, yes, some concrete barriers like those prototypes we've seen out in California, plus some fencing in places where fencing makes more sense, plus some technological devices that will help them censor and track things in, in more remote areas. It doesn't have to be built by the end of this calendar year, though. This conversation looks at something like an $18 billion border security plan that bolsters the physical security of the border, but over 10 years and what they may only need in this agreement with DACA is the what they call authorizing language to essentially begin that project to be followed in the 2019 budget that has to be written by October, which won't get written, that's a whole other story, but in future budgets begin seeding that project with the first little bit of money. If if that's all they need so that the president can say he's getting his wall, so be it. But that also means that he Mm. won't be here in 10 years. And maybe it'll look a little different by then.
8: Right. And on Tuesday, Trump jumped directly from a bill for dreamers to the wall. Except now it doesn't seem like he needs to have that wall actually along the entire border.
12: ICE last week. I had a big meeting with the Border Patrol agents last week. Nobody knows it better than them. As an example of the wall, they say, sir, we desperately need the wall. And we don't need a 2,000-mile wall. We don't need a wall where you have rivers and mountains and everything else protecting. But we do need a wall for a fairly good portion.
8: I covered the fact that in 2007, $28 billion were set aside by Congress and George W. Bush to build the wall. Okay, I just don't want us to forget that we've been here before and that the wall, you know, I I love the fact that you use the appropriate language as in the legalistic, what, you know, fencing where appropriate. I'm sorry. It's a money grab. Mm -hmm.
11: But that but that Maria is why. Any agreement to do this should be rooted in a grain of salt. Someone's going to come along with those $18 billion and need it for something else.
10: But look, also repeal and replace. They also realize, oh, wait, we don't have a replacement. But for their base and for their donors, you kind of have to drum up some of these talking points uh, that Donald Trump ran with, which still galvanize millions around the country uh, who think differently from Maria. And so for many Democrats, especially in the in the last two weeks in D.C., uh exactly as Ed said, some folks are saying, okay, uh, if it gives the Republicans and Donald Trump specifically a short-term win that he can spin, but what we get is protection for DACA, and if what we can get is protection for 200,000 Salvadorans, and then God knows what's going to happen in 2018, and then we can just come back and say, psych, and by that time, there's enough people who realize this is a toxic idea, why not go along with it, uh, let the Republicans feel like they've got a win, uh, they go back to their donors, their base. Trump then trumpets on Twitter that he has a win. And at the end of the day, the win is just some authorized language for a wall that hopefully will never get built. If that's the short term loss to get a long term win, why not do it? Um, and that's kind of the, the talking point that's been emerging in the last two weeks here.
0: reach the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism: demand the passage of a Clean Dream Act now. As we know, we are witnessing a full-fledged attack on immigrants in this country, upticks in ICE raids and arrests throughout 2017, the Muslim ban, changes to the H-1B visa program, announcing the end of DACA, and now the end of temporary protected status for Salvadorians. With every action, Trump is ripping apart families, destroying futures, and striking massive blows to the American labor force all to pander to the extremists and bigots in his dwindling base. According to United We Dream, every day that Congress fails to pass a Clean Dream Act, 122 young immigrants lose their DACA status and become exposed to deportation. 260,000 Salvadorians who have lived and worked in the U.S. and raised children here for 20 years now face an uncertain future. Just those two groups alone make up over 1 million people whose lives and livelihoods in America are now at risk. Those are neighbors, friends, classmates, and co-workers. These are taxpayers, business owners, and community members. These are children who have only known America as home. This week, a federal court in California blocked the Trump administration's decision to end DACA, but the decision will soon be appealed. Lives are still in limbo, and time is running out. United We Dream is an action organization led by immigrant youth that has been at the forefront of the fight for a clean dream act and the fight against immigration injustice. Their grassroots action campaigns have included 1,500 immigrant youth blocking the tunnels that Congress members use to get from their offices to the Capitol building in D.C. in December, the occupations of 30 different congressional offices, Republicans and Democrats, with sit-ins, and a massive sit-in on the Capitol lawn with a jumbotron called the Dream Act-tron, broadcasting immigrant stories 24 hours a day for an entire week in December. Their digital campaigns include making it easy to tweet at members of Congress deemed the Dream Killers and the Deportation Caucus, and yes, Democrats are included in that group, to publicly shame them for their terrible votes on immigration issues. This fight is far from over, and these activists need your support and calls to your members of Congress. To learn more, get involved, and or donate to United We Dream's actions and campaigns, go to weareheretostay.org. And one last note, as we were putting today's show together, United We Dream reported that while immigrant youth were visiting congressional district offices in Los Angeles, California, they were followed by a mob of angry Trump supporters who shouted white power and racial slurs at them— and then tried to violently board their Dream Act bus. Actor and activist Alyssa Milano captured the incident on video. So obviously these kids are beyond brave. They are standing up to hate and putting their lives on the line to fight to stay in America, their home. There is no question that they make this country better. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com, so if you are disgusted by the assault on immigrants in America, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about passing a clean dream act now via social media so that others in your network can help spread the word too.
13: to be an american citizen no. i was born in brooklyn new york and raised in denver colorado but my parents were immigrants my mom who was a college professor was born in british Guyana, and my father who was a geologist was born in the democratic republic of congo two people who immigrated from those countries from countries located in south america just off the caribbean and africa and uh, just off the caribbean and from africa Parts of the world that presumably, according to the president of the United States, you will find shithole countries from which the United States should not accept immigrants. Tonight, the breaking news out of Washington, D.C. should come as no surprise to any American, but it should be embarrassing to every American. This afternoon, the man who was elevated to the presidency of the United States, Trump, who was sued by the Nixon administration in the 1970s for refusing to rent apartments to African-Americans, who rose to political prominence by questioning whether the first black president was really an American who kicked off his campaign by calling Mexicans rapists and who as president said that there were good people among the Nazis who marched in Charlottesville and who killed a woman by ramming, ramming her with their car. That man, Donald Trump, during a meeting in the Oval Office inside the White House, did the least surprising thing of his presidency today. Both NBC News, which cites a Democratic aide, and The Washington Post, which broke the story and has two sources, report that Trump became frustrated when lawmakers proposed reinstating protections for immigrants from Haiti and from African countries as part of a bipartisan immigration deal. The Post reports that El Salvador was also among the nations mentioned. The Trump administration had moved in recent months to end such protections. After lawmakers made their proposal, the Post reported Trump said, why are we having all these people from shithole countries come here, then added that the U.S. should have more people from places like Norway. Why do we need more Haitians, Trump said, the Post reports, citing people familiar with the meeting. Take them out. Later, the White House didn't even pretend Trump didn't say it. Its response to the reports reads in part, certain Washington politicians choose to fight for foreign countries, but President Trump will always fight for the American people. It should also not surprise you at this point that this is reportedly not the first time Donald Trump has uttered these kinds of comments during a discussion on immigration in December. The New York Times reported that Trump slurred Haitians, saying they, quote, all have AIDS and that once Nigerians, whose country of 186 million people has lots and lots and lots of big cities, that once they had seen the shiny, gleamy United States, they would never, quote, go back to their huts in Africa. But remember, Trump's comments are not just idle talk. The White House statement confirms that it is the position of the president of the United States in an Oval Office meeting with top elected officials working out a deal on our immigration policy that we should discriminate about who can come to America based on the color of their skin and their nationality. Less people from S-holes, more people from Norway.
3: We've just
0: heard clips today starting with the Majority Report reminiscing about how Reagan and H.W. Bush used to debate about immigration. Dr. Roger Ray, during one of his progressive faith sermons, explained how the economics of immigrants works out well for us rather than them being a drain on the system. The Dig dug into the folly of the border wall. The David Pakman Show explained why deportations are actually down since Trump's immigration policies have been put in place. The Majority Report discussed the ticking clock facing DACA recipients. In the Thick talked about the coming end of TPS for Salvadorians. Our activism for today is in support of United We Dream. And finally, we just heard Joy Reid on MSNBC explain Trump's latest comments on immigration. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
12: Hey, Amanda, this is Dave at Olympia, Washington. Just a quick voicemail. I was listening to another podcast. I'm sorry. Rationally speaking, was interviewing somebody talking about choice falsification. And there's not really a clip that would fit in any context. The idea that uh, you express things publicly different than what you might express internally, what you truly believe. And from trivial cases of my friends want to go see this movie and I don't really want to I'm not into that movie whatever but I, yeah whatever I, I don't say anything we play along to you know a super racist thing gets said do you stand up to you express your things publicly or conversely racists are feeling more freedom to express their opinions online I don't think that's because there are more racists suddenly I think that's because there is a, a freedomness they sense of freedom to not have to hide their true beliefs anymore. This led to a one-off statement, kind of a, like, an idea, what if Congress was allowed secret ballots? So the Senate could still debate, they could still rant, they could send out their inflammatory fundraising emails of, oh, we're going to save the country from whoever we're going to save it from, but when it comes down to vote, it's a secret ballot. It kind of blew my. I'm like, well, I don't know. They'd be unaccountable. Well, maybe they've been accountable to the, you know, to the the interests that have bribed them. Well, maybe that's a good thing. This is totally unrealistic.
7: This is never
12: going to happen. But it makes my brain tingle with with ideas. It, it's an interesting thought experiment that I'm going to be dwelling on for a while, I thought I would share and maybe share with other folks in the audience, see what they all think. As always, Jay, it. you guys stay awesome.
14: Hey, Jay, it's Nick from California. Um, I was just calling, I'm a a long-time listener, and I think it was last year you told a pretty compelling story about how you basically stepped away from Best of the Left. You like, put like, a committee in charge of it or other people in charge of it and actually had walked away from it. You like, built it up and then sort of walked away from it to do other things and he sort of left the story there and said, well, I'll see you next year and I'll tell you then. And so I remember that because I always remember thinking, I've been a long-time listener and I must have just started listening the whole timeline. Not too much after that supposedly happened, maybe like a year later. So you know, I was interested to hear this best of the left lore about that in its entirety. You left it on a cliffhanger and I remember that and I just listened to the year-end review show and uh, uh, you you failed to deliver on your promise to uh, resolve the end of that story or at least the middle of that story where you sort of came back and took the head of it or explained what that story meant or or whatever. So just reminding you, in case you ever get to it, uh, in a bonus or something, Uh, that there were some people who who remembered that and uh, were eager to hear it. All right, man. Keep up all the good work. Take care. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And especially thanks to Nick for holding me accountable today. I, I mean, what kind of a political podcaster would I be? Uh, who's always uh, you know, railing about holding politicians and media accountable if I shied away from an instance like this where I myself was being held accountable. So Nick is completely right. I told a story a year ago in the uh, Look Back episode for 2007, explaining that in that year, I actually sort of burned out and for a variety of reasons stopped doing the show, but... This amazing uh, Gold Star volunteer, not to be confused with Gold Star Widows, so that's a bad comparison, just, just a, a, an amazing volunteer stepped up, the same guy who had like built the website pro bono at the time, and he stepped up and actually became the primary producer of the show, and he worked with you know a, a small cadre of volunteers who helped collect clips, and they kept the show going. And the cliffhanger at the end of that story was he did not continue producing that show forever. So what happened? Did I, the founder of the show, uh, ever come back and and sort of pick up the reins again to continue the show? And I I apologize for keeping you in suspense for two weeks longer than I intended instead of just a year. It's been a year and two weeks. Uh, And... I will reveal now that, yes, I did eventually come back and produce the show. And that was a tense moment at the time. You know, people wondered, will the show continue? You know, first one producer sort of burns out and can't keep doing it, and then the next steps up, but he burns out, and, and he hoped that he could find someone else to take his shoes and, uh, you know, or fill his shoes, <laughs> not, not take them. That's a silly uh, analogy. So uh, he, he tries to find someone to fill his shoes and he can't, no, no one steps up, you know, and I hoped someone else would step up, but they didn't. And so I said, all right, I don't want this thing to die. I'll do it. So I step back in to the producer's seat and uh, the show continues on. So, so Billy, th- this, uh, this all-star volunteer, had done like a pretty good chunk of that 2008 election season. And, and I've come back. Right before the election and, and do the, the sort of October run up to the election and and all of the post-election Obama mania stuff. And what I what I did was, you know, I, I had a full time job at the time. And so I knew, like, if I'm going to come back and do this, I have to make this sustainable. So I, I did a combination of things. I worked really hard. I, you know, I had a full-time job, 9 to 5, but I was getting up at like 6 in the morning to work on the show before work, and then I would work on the show after work and you know until bedtime, basically. It was just, it was just like all of my free time was dedicated to this, and I was working on trying to grow the show, want to increase the audience size, and figure out how to raise money, and that's when I came up with my uh, theory of throwing everything at the wall just to see what sticks. and I I don't think I'm the first person who ever had that idea, but I certainly adopted it. So I tried a membership program. I tried uh, selling apparel. I tried selling the podcast by mail on CDs to politically savvy yet technologically inept elderly people so they could hear the show and and uh, you know, tried to raise money that way. Like I tried everything. I mean, ads too, but the show was too small at the time and and the 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 market for podcast advertising hadn't matured at all. So that was really a no go. So a couple little insights from that time. There are a lot of the really standard elements. Of a success story in there, you know there was hard work, but there was also luck. Uh, there was a little bit, you know, like a, a quirky thing that that gave me an advantage. So, uh, all of all of the above for your standard uh, success story. So the quirky thing was when I was trying to grow the show. This is back when iTunes, I mean, it's still the case that iTunes is the biggest directory of podcasts. You know, people mostly find podcasts either through iTunes or their Apple devices, which are connected to iTunes. And back in the day, the search algorithm for iTunes included the description of a show. And so any word you use in the description of a show counted basically as a keyword, Nowadays, it's just the title of the show and title of of individual episodes. That's what gets searched. Ten years ago, they were searching the title of the, uh, of the show and of each episode and the description of the show. So you could write, like, anything you wanted in the description and basically fill it with keywords. And so the idea I had was – and, you know, I didn't – I don't, I don't consider this really slimy. I didn't use a bunch of keywords that were unrelated to, to try to uh, get people to find the show. But what I did was I just said, you know, this is a great combination of political views from the progressive side. And so if you like shows like The Rachel Maddow Show and Countdown with Keith Olbermann and The Young Turks, and I listed about two dozen shows saying, you know, if you like shows like this, then you'll like my show. And so what that meant was that for a time, if anyone searched for Rachel Maddow or Keith Olbermann or any show like that, that had, you know, most of those had just launched as podcasts, uh, not just as their radio shows or their TV shows, then obviously the person would find that show. And then the second hit would be Best of the Left. So many of you listening now may have even found the show that way. You search for Rachel Maddow, and the second thing that popped up was something called Best of Left. And you thought, huh, well, that, that sounds interesting. You subscribe to both, and become a fan for life. And that, more than anything else at any other time in the history of the show, helped grow the audience. And that was a quirk of the system that has since been erased. You, you can't you can't game the system that way anymore. So, as I said. It was a story filled with genuine, hard, hard work full of long hours and absolute luck and quirky circumstances that helped give us a much, much needed boost at the time. And and, and one side note, in, in case you've ever wondered, there's an inside story to why Rachel Maddow has a podcast. You know, MSNBC doesn't go around podcasting most of what they have on on their channel but Rachel Maddow came from radio and she had built such a, such a big and you know pretty loyal radio audience including through podcasting that she didn't want to basically abandon those people when she moved to MSNBC so she wrote it into her original contract with MSNBC that not only would she get paid millions of dollars and you know whatever else is in her contract but that MSNBC had to promise to maintain both an audio and a video podcast of her show basically in perpetuity so that that podcast audience would always be able to see her show that way. And so that's why Rachel is one of the only people who has a podcast uh, from an MSNBC show. And That was all happening at about that time. I don't remember exactly when she made the jump from radio to television full-time, but her having a podcast was an enormous boost for us because people would search for her in the podcast store and find us uh, secondarily. So that was pretty much everything that happened in 2008, uh, looking, looking back 10 years, was the beginning of saying, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm, I'm going to really do it. I'm, I'm doing it 100%. This isn't just going to be a hobby. I'm going to figure out a way to make this sustainable, figure out how to do it, figure out how to make money, figure out how to grow the audience, all of those things. you know. And, and so unfortunately, that's kind of where I have to leave you because the, the story continues in 2009, and, and we just have to wait until next year. Nick, make a note to remind me to finish this story next year when I do my uh, 2009 look-back episode to find out, did this show ever find a stable financial model to keep going, or did I eventually have to shut it down for lack of funding or lack of time, a lack of energy to be able to keep it going? You'll just have to wait until next year to find out. Um, but there's one other really critical element that I want to throw into this story, which is that there was an enormous amount of emotional and actual labor going on behind the scenes. I was living with my girlfriend at the time, and she, you know, I mean, we were both young, and so she was sort of in that normal situation of not knowing exactly what she wanted to do with her life. She didn't have like a passion she was following at the time, and I did. And we sort of just came to this agreement somewhat naturally, uh, through some discussion, and, but also just it sort of fell into these roles that while I was working incredibly hard, getting up really early, you know working 10 or 12 hours a day, she took on a lot of the emotional labor that comes along with that, and cleaning and cooking and doing those sorts of things that I felt. Rightly? Question mark. But you know, justified in saying like, I you know, I just don't, I don't have the energy. I don't have the capacity to do it. If, if I'm going to be doing this other thing and I'm going to try to make a real go of it with this show, then you know, can I can I just focus on this and you can help out and be supportive by doing these other things like making dinner at night? And so without that, there's no amount of effort I would have had available. To do what I did, to to build the show in the time frame that I did, and and to build the audience and and build the uh, the membership program and try to get funding for it, and and just put out enough episodes, just do the actual day to day work of putting out episodes to make the show uh, what it is and make make it something that people wanted to support. And so, I, I just want to throw in that note, uh, you know. The term emotional labor was not something I would have even been aware of ten years ago, and I appreciated like you know I, I appreciated it at the time I didn't have a word for it but I appreciated it at the time um, but uh, you know I've learned so much in the last ten years that I appreciated more now than I, I, I ever could have back then so that'll wrap up the story for this year stick with us for another year to find out whether or not. the the show managed to succeed and keep going or not as always you can keep the comments coming in by dialing 202-999-3991 that is going to be it for today thanks to everyone for listening thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. that is absolutely how the program survives of course everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.